are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, uh, friends, you can be seated. Uh, thank everyone for joining us tonight. Good afternoon. Um, before we jump into our time in the Word, which is what we're going to be doing right now, um, I want to take a, not, a, a moment to acknowledge three things. The first one is obviously I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers present. Yeah, give a woo to the fathers of which I subscribe. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to take a moment to simply say uh, thank you. Um, it's a work as a father that is important and it looks different uh, for each one of us. Maybe you uh, are in a season uh, with young children like I am. Maybe you're in a season where your children are a little bit older, maybe teenagers, maybe they're grown, uh, right? But at the same time, uh, no matter what space uh, it is important, maybe even uh, it's including, I should say, uh, fathers whose children are not biologically theirs, not just in an idea like adoption, but even in an idea like uh, not talking about adoption, but rather talking about mentorship, um, loving young men and young women and helping them grow into the people that God is calling them uh, to be. Uh, it's powerful. And I want to charge you that it's important. Uh, if you are hearing me as a father, I want to tell you that your work is important. We live in a culture uh, where sometimes fathers can feel minimized. And it's not at all trying to take away from the importance of mothers, but rather uh, to charge you as fathers that fatherhood is important, especially uh, in a community like the one we serve, where 49% of the households, hear me again when I say that, 49% of the households in the community that we serve are single mother households. 49%. And so I charge you that your work as a father is important, not just for the sake of your children, uh, but also for the sake of people watching uh, outside of your household, people watching you be a father, learning how they can be a father, or maybe even um, inspiring uh, other men to rejoin their families and to be a father where they are not right now. So I want to say happy Father's Day and charge you that your work is important. And so happy Father's Day to all of my, my fathers out here. Second, I want to say happy Juneteenth. All right, a couple of woos, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, for those that don't know, Juneteenth, celebration of the day that news that uh, all slaves in the U.S. Uh, were freed, were freed. And it arrived in uh, Texas, who was the last to know, good for us, um, you know, with that would be us, all right. Um, but it arrived here, and it's a celebration of that beautiful news uh, that, that human beings made in God's image were set free. As people, hear me, I, I bring this up today in church because as people uh, who serve and worship a God who longs to see uh, those enslaved to sin and bondage set free, who pursue justice based on the fact that we serve a Savior who allowed justice to overtake him so that oppressed people could be made free, we of all people should naturally respond to a day like Juneteenth in celebration. And so I want to encourage you that the weekend ain't over. Uh, tonight, find a way to celebrate that. Find a way to celebrate that beautiful day while at the same time considering uh, the justices that still need uh, to be seen and found and, and the evil that needs to be hated and overthrown and made into good. Consider where God wants to do that, not just in the past, but hear me, there are more celebrations to be celebrated like this, if that makes sense. 
Uh, there are more days to be commemorated where we see injustice overthrown for good. And so think about where uh, our lives are being called to see those things transformed as well. And so I want to say happy Juneteenth. And the third thing that I want to bring up before we get into our time in the Word is simply happy homecoming to Austin FC because they played their, la their first home game yesterday. And you know I had to mention it. I'm just going to mention that. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but awesome. All right. So. Today we're jumping into our time in the Word. We're going to be continuing our sermon series called Together Again, where we're investigating and looking into uh, really the rhythms of community. Uh, everyone knows that during this season in our lives, we're kind of getting back to normal, right? We're almost in the post-pandemic era, right? Okay, we got some woos, all right, that's what I'm talking about. And like you, I'm excited. We got great uh, opportunities to go out and have fun. I went to a concert a few weeks ago for the first time. It was super fun, right? Like we're in here, but er, almost everybody ain't wearing a mask. Like there's so much good things to celebrate, right? We're, we're kind of uh, interjecting ourselves back into the normal rhythms of life. Yet as we make our way back into that normalcy, uh, it it's oftentimes easy to forget in the midst of the excitement that there are spiritual rhythms God is calling us to as well. And one of those is community and gathering together as community. Uh, and so right now, uh, we're going to get into our second week of uh, Together Again, where we're focusing on that rhythm of community and what it means to gather together. Now, last week we took a look at how understanding our role as God's family reveals God's goodness and purpose in our lives. This week we're unraveling uh, that kind of onion, another layer of that onion, uh, answering this question, how do we live and become this people of God that we're talking about, though? How do we live and become this people of God that we're talking about? It's one thing uh, to know our role uh, as God's people. It's a whole other thing to live our role as God's people. Uh, and often, hear me, the journey of getting from I understand and I know my role to I am actively living my role as a part of God's people uh, can be confusing. It can be frustrating. It can be a, a rough and challenging experience because we read about these stories in the Bible and they are encouraging and they are inspiring. Yet we oftentimes don't experience those same types of stories in our lives personally. Right? We hear about God working through these groups in the Bible or maybe uh, in other parts of the world and they can be easy to feel like, how come I don't feel like that for me? Right? It's kind of, a, it's kind of confusing. So we grow actually confused and we go frustrated because we assume that it's supposed to happen, right? When we read stories of the Bible about community, we assume when we look at them, well, that's just how it's supposed to be then. And yes, hear me, you have family in Christ, 100%. We, we, we live, we, we are brought into faith and we have this family, yet oftentimes we don't understand that, oh, there, there's a difference between knowing that and actually living it out. And living it out, hear me, has its own challenges. We meet different enemies when we try to start living this thing out. We, we meet different foes that are trying to actively rob things from us and take away the, the way that God desires for us to live out this life in community that brings blessings and that brings uh, the, really the promises that God has provided for us. Yet, it's in that struggle. Hear me. I want you to hear me when I say this. It's in that struggle of living out Christian community, life in this family that God actually works in our hearts and our lives. It's in that struggle that God works in other people's lives. It's in that struggle that God begins to work in the world through what he's doing in community. And that's the main point today. 
right, that it's in the high and the low points of living out Christian community that God works in us and others for the sake of the world. I want you to remember that point, that idea, that it's in the high and low points of living out Christian community that God works in us and others for the sake of the world. To really wrap our heads around this idea today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, all right, what, what, uh, what Samantha just read for us. And as we work our way through that text, we're going to be taking a look at two ideas. The first one is becoming God's people spiritually. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are the requirements? Let's answer that. What is becoming God's people spiritually? But second, we're going to take a look at kind of the follow-up idea, which is becoming God's people practically. Yes, there is a reality that we become God's people spiritually, but how do we become God's people, God's people practically? What does that look like? What, is, what are we called to in that? And so let's go ahead and jump in. Those are going to be the, the two points we're working through today. Uh, I would love for us to reread for the sake of reading the Bible together as a people, uh, verses 42 uh, through 47 together. Uh, and then I want to say a short prayer for the sake of my own mind uh, while I'm up here to kind of purge myself of that like weird feeling of like, oh, well, look, everybody looking at me. All right, so let's go ahead and read um, Acts 2, 42 through 47 together. And then if you would join me in a short blessing over this time. Uh, they, that is uh, those who would come to faith, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. If you would join me in that short blessing. Father, thank you so much for this time. I ask for all of us that you would prepare hearts to receive uh, intentionally. Uh, don't let it be a passive reception, Father, but let us actively pursue what you would have for us today. Empty me of anything that is of me, that desires only my own selfish desires. Uh, purge me of that right now, Father. Allow your spirit to speak to your people in order to do what you desire in us. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so fam, let's go ahead and start with this first idea, right? Becoming God's people spiritually. What does that mean? When we jump into our text in Acts chapter 2, really we're jumping into like an action-packed part of Acts. It's right at the beginning, and to summarize it, to put it into to two short words, Jesus is working. He's working, all right? Uh, just before ascending into heaven at the beginning in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, in their waiting, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is going to give them power to be his disciples and to make disciples locally and across the world. And so they go to this upper room in Jerusalem. You maybe have heard of that before. If not, uh, we went through Acts of, like last year. Feel free to go back and check that out. They wait in this upper room. Uh, there's 120 of them. And just like Jesus said, boom, they receive that Spirit. They receive him, the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. And it's real obvious because they start going off in all these other languages. 
All right, so there's 120 people. They all basically speak the same language, maybe variations of languages a little bit. But then in this moment, in the snap of a finger, this spirit descends and enters into uh, the people of God. They're waiting, Jesus' disciples, and they respond with speaking in tongues and different languages. And this is really amazing because during that moment in Jerusalem, it was festival season. And so there was a ton of different people outside, foreigners, who spoke all these languages that were coming out of this room. And so they stop and they look at each other like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Like, I'm, I'm hearing my own language is going on. Yeah, your own language. Like, they're all in this, this kind of amazed state that this room full of these people that, that are locals would now be speaking in all these different languages. And it's out of this powerful but kind of confusing scene that Peter steps out in front. And he begins to speak to the masses. And he does this beautiful job through Acts chapter 2 of laying out the history of Israel. And he shows them their forefathers and, and where they've come from. And he lays out their story and he concludes that the same Jesus that was crucified by them just a few weeks prior is alive. And he's not just alive, but he's their king. And in fact, he's the world's savior. In fact, he's not just their king, he's king of the world. It's a powerful moment. Just reading it. When you read it with this understanding that history had been really working its way from the very beginning, from every mistake to every triumph, just to have this moment where this beautiful Savior was heralded as the king of everything. It's powerful just to read that. But it must have been very powerful in person because the masses respond uh, just in this wild way. And in the response that we get from the masses... Right, we actually really get the answer to our first question. Check this out. Look at Acts 2, 37 to 40, right? Um, in 37, it says, when they heard this, they being the masses that Peter was speaking to, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, uh, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved uh, from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. You see that? They respond after this powerful sermon, basically being like, Peter, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter responds, repent, that's turn away from that former way of life and that former way of thinking, especially about Jesus, and be baptized in the name of Jesus, declaring your belief and your faith in him. And friends, hear me when I say this. Please listen to me. What does it mean to become God's people spiritually? That's it. It is literally that simple. When you repent and believe Scripture is clear that you receive God's spirit, which happens upon your belief and your turning away from your former life. And just like that, you're a part of God's family. It's exemplified in, in that moment you're baptized, right? Because it's saying that I died to this former way of life and I'm now resurrected. I'm, I'm taken up out of the water to new life in Christ and with Christ. 
But it also, hear me, it also is a sign. It's a public declaration. It's it's similar to uh, the act of circumcision in the Old Testament. We're now coming out of the water. It's a public declaration that I'm now belong to, I now belong to this people. This is my king. I am a part of God's people. And when we come to faith spiritually, that becomes the truth. And that's all. That's it. And here's the first bit of encouraging news with this today. Because Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be brought into his family on our behalf. Hear me. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no weird standards or bars that you got to reach in order to become a part of God's family. You can't be made to feel like the weird stepchild or the black sheep. Because none of us, hear me, not a single one of us get into God's family on our own merit, on our own culture, on our own performance. We are a family of orphans that have been made sons and daughters through the loving act of God our Father. Through Jesus our Savior to bring us and make us a part of God's family. You're his. Hear me, you're his. Everybody real quick with me say you're his. All right, I'm not going to lie. That was such a big statement, and y'all gave it like a five, and I'm looking for an 11. So real quick, say you're his. That's what I'm talking about. You're his not because of what you've done or what you haven't done, the way you dress, the way you sing, your style, uh, your, your preferences. No, God loves you simply because he made you. And his act of making you his son, his daughter, is based on that simple fact. In other words, I want you to think of it like this. This family is built on faithfulness and not favoritism. Hear me. This family that we belong to is built on faithfulness, not favoritism. Maybe you've struggled because your family experience has been difficult. Right? Maybe you didn't fit into your family. Maybe they were favorites and, and you didn't necessarily feel like you fit that description. Maybe you didn't live up to certain expectations that your family had of you. Right? Maybe you struggled conforming to things that you hated. And you conformed to them anyway, but deep down inside you had that feeling of, gosh, I, I know that I'm accepted, but now I look at myself in the mirror and I'm not sure I like me. Maybe even having to conform to things that were ungodly because you longed for acceptance. This is many of our stories. This is a ton of the stories that are in this room right now. Hear me. It's a story that was on full display last night on national TV. You might be like, what are you talking about? Last night, Mexico's greatest boxer in the entire world, Julio Cesar Chavez, fought his last exhibition match in a ring in Guadalajara, Mexico. And hear me. There's only like a few of us in here that know the weight of Julio Cesar Chavez when I say it. It's like you say it and it's like you're talking about a deity. He just lives in the legend and lore of Mexicans. It's just like Mexican-Americans, Mexicans from Mexico, Mexicans from England. It don't matter. You say Julio Cesar Chavez and they're like, mm, mm. He's, a guy, he's like a small D deity in the culture. And this exhibition match that he participated in was meant to be an homage to one of the greatest boxers of all time. And before the last round started, he went to the side of the ring and he looked at someone and he said, hey, come on, come on, come on. 
For the last round, he invited a man named Saul Canelo Alvarez to join his corner and be a part of his team for the last round. And if you don't know who Canelo is, he's also a growing figure in Mexican-American sports lore. He is uh, one who by many right now is considered the greatest boxer in the world, the best boxer in the world. And many believe he has the potential to really take the title of the greatest Mexican fighter of all time away from Chavez and make it his own as time goes by. He's only like 30 years old. And at the end of the fight, when it was done, uh, Canelo got into the ring and he met with Chavez and they embraced and they put their heads together and they looked at each other and he said, no matter, Canelo looked at him and said, no matter what, you're always going to be the greatest in Spanish, but, but nonetheless. And the two embraced. It looked like a father and son and many commented it looked like the, the torch was being passed from one generation of greatness to the next. And it would have been a very beautiful moment. If not for at the very same time in Houston, Texas, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. was losing a fight alone, living with the disappointment that everyone says his father has in him because he never measured up to the expectation of being a great boxer. In fact, in Houston, he was losing to a novice competitor that looked at him and said, hit me. You ain't got nothing. Hit me. And in that room, he was, in that ring, he was alone. I'm sure he was hurt. While on the other side of the continent, his dad embraced another man who commentators said, Saul Canelo Alvarez is like the son Chavez wished he had. Maybe you know that feeling. Right? Maybe you know what it is to wrestle with something like disappointment, disapproval, and oftentimes the isolation that comes as a result of feeling like I measure up. I'm not like them. I'm not like that. I, I'm not quite there, and, and, and I feel lonely as a result of it. But friend, hear me. The last name of this family ain't Chavez, and it's not whatever family you may have came from. This family, hear me. It's built on faithfulness. It's not built on favoritism. There ain't nothing that you could have done that was going to make your father look at you and say, I like him more than I like you. I like her more than I like you. Because it was always going to be a family built on your heavenly father looking at you and saying, I made you, I love you, and nothing you do will ever change that. It's a love and a family that's sealed in God's own blood. A faithfulness that's sealed not just by word, but by deed. That heavenly father, that, that beautiful, loving creator laying down his life for you to show you the depths of his goodness and the depths of his love. And how do you become a member of that family? You turn to him. You turn to him in repentance. You turn to him in faith. If you're not a part of that family now, you feel like you're on the, 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 the periphery of it, right? You're worried that's not you. Turn to him now. Holler at your boy afterwards. It's, it's that. It's, it's pretty. It's a simple process because Jesus has done everything required to make it possible. That's all. But this is where it actually gets tricky here. Because once we understand that I am now a part of this family, we learn something about the family in this text that, that kind of makes it a little bit of a weird uh, wrestling match to navigate. Check out verse 39 in Acts chapter 2 one more time. It says, 
Peter, responding to the masses, says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. It's for you, it's for your kids, and it's for those afar off. Here's the thing. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of different people. See, there's you. Which even there, if you're going to be real with yourself, you ain't the easiest person to deal with, all right? Even, even when you're looking at yourself, you're like, oh, I hate me sometimes. You know, like, yeah, if you ain't never had that feeling, you're lying to yourself, but I'm just letting you know right now, all right? So there's you. There's you. But then in addition to the, the, the people that he was talking to, that you meant a bunch of different people. Because the you he was talking to was people from every nation, right, from different tongues. They shared the same faith because they were all Jewish, but, but they were actually from different cultures and customs and regions. And so even that, when he said it's for you, had a built-in measure of diversity that was insane and, and broad. But then he went another step further and said, but it's also for your children. So, so not just is it for you, you diverse group of people from different parts of the world, but it's for your kids too. And so maybe all of y'all can get together and be like, you know what, man, my back hurts, my knees hurt. But then you got to deal with this other set of people that are like, I'm young and I got energy. Right? So, so there's a generational aspect to it now, too. Because, yes, it's for you, but it's also for the people behind you. But it's also for the people ahead of you because you're their children. Right? And it's also for people afar off, people that you don't know, people from different cultures and different customs that are different colors that have different experiences and bring different thoughts and perceptions of the world into your family and into your relationships. And yes, this family is for them too. This family is for all these people. And if you're anything like me, you probably have one question. How in the world is that going to work? Because hear me, I have a family of me, that woman, Oh, back there, Rachel. I mean, call that woman like that, babe. I love you. All right. My wife, Rachel, and two small children. And you know what? It's hard already. And we got pretty similar backgrounds. We got pretty similar experiences. And yet God has called me in the midst of even those struggles to be faithful and to live out life as a family with her. And with our children, and now adding in my dad, my mom, my, my uncles and aunts, my extended family, now I'm called to live in a family that goes past that. And to these other people that are from different experiences and different cultures and different ages and maybe speak different languages. And so I got to bust out like Google Translate to understand some of these people. But they're now a part of my family. That's my family. That's my people. The person speaking that language that I don't know and wearing flip-flops in winter, right? That, I look at that type of person and I'm like, that's my people. They sing and worship this Jesus that I sing and worship. They've turned to the beauty of the majesty of the God who died for them in order to make them whole and to bring them back to himself. That's my family. But that, hear me, that's why these next few verses are so powerful, right? That's why these next few verses are so powerful because they don't just show us spiritually what it means to be God's people. The next set of verses move on and really show us practically what it looks like to be God's people and to experience being God's people, right? Check out verses 41 through 47 again, and now I want you to read them with just a little different lens on, and I'll show you that lens in a second. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, 
Uh, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with, joy, with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. I'm going to stop right there. Remember, this is a verse about 3,000 people. 3,000 people coming to faith. And as I mentioned, these are people from different regions. They spoke different languages. They were from different cultures, even though they were still Jewish altogether. And now they're family. Now they're brought together. And while I'm not sure if this is a comprehensive list, the text gives us some idea of how they become family on a practical level right here. You get 3,000 people, many of which just met each other, and now they're said to be God's family together. And thankfully, it's not like, now go figure it out. The text gives us some ideas of how that happens, right? To help us break it down, I want to break it down into three ideas. There's a lot, there's several things that happen here. But the three ideas I want you to see in how they practically become family are these, that they, uh, they submit themselves, they devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, and to worship. In the text, we see three real big ideas. They devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, and to worship. The first is they devote themselves to teaching, right? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They become God's people practically together by seeking the teaching of the apostles together. What teaching do you think that was? Because hear me, at the time, there ain't no Bible. There ain't no like New Testament Bible, right? So that's what makes it a little, a little more confusing. They sought the apostles' teaching. This was going to be the same set of teachings that later became our Bible. So they were pursuing the same teachings that we got. Stories about Jesus' life, stories about D Jesus' doctrine, right? Stories and, and about who he was and, and the way he taught and what it meant. They learned lessons about Jesus and, and really like his, and like even, it sounds weird, but like his presence. I'm, I'm sure that they literally looked at him like, man, being around Jesus was amazing. And now he's, now he's with us in, in his spirit. And here's why that's important. They came together and became God's family practically by pursuing the teachings of the apostles together. And that became the authority of their lives, right? You, you look at something like 2 Timothy 3, and it says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so this scripture, these ideas of Jesus' teachings and his life, they're the means by which we are formed spiritually. They're the means by which we are formed into Christ's likeness. The way we're rebuked, the way we're taught to become more mature, the way uh, the, the, the Lord utilizes the, the scriptures to say, hey, right now, brother, sister, you are not necessarily functioning in a way that's godly. That's what the scriptures do. God works through scripture to build us up to build us up on an individual level, to build us up on a corporate and communal level. He doesn't build us up alone. He builds us up in community. Yes, it's, in, in, it's on an individual level, but also it gives way to a community level. Our idea of scripture oftentimes is limited to that individual level. We think to ourselves, like, yeah, when I wake up, I got to get my devotion time in. I got to, like, spend my time with the Lord. And then from there, I'm ready to go tackle the day or whatnot. Yet in scripture, uh, we often see that that this individual devotion time is not how the setting of engaging the Bible is set. 
right? It happens in, in these communal contexts. Look at something like Colossians 3, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. You, meaning y'all, you are the congregation. In all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, each other. You see, the, the, the word of God dwells richly in us when we are correcting and loving each other with the word. Do we desire to be anchored in God's care, his affection, the lessons of who Jesus is and what he's done to draw near to him in worship, to be, to be affectionately in love with Jesus? It requires engaging his word, not just by ourselves, together. Man, you're looking at people whose opinions and perceptions about uh, scripture are necessary for you to understand, right, what God is doing in your life. We become one people when we work through the word together. Understanding that this word that declares the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God is not limited to one type of person. When I, as a Latino male, approach the Bible, I read it in a specific way. But when my brother Jermaine approaches the Bible as a black man, he reads it in a unique way. When my sister Cassie approaches it as a white female, she addresses it in, or experiences it in a unique way. And then when we come together, we learn of this mosaic of God's goodness that impacts the one that's from uh, Latin America, the one that is, is an African American, the one that is a white person, the one that's a woman, the one that's a man, the one that's skinny, the one that's fat. When we come together, we learn this idea that God's word, his goodness, and his grace meet all of us. Right? There's not one thing that stops it from coming to you and saying, I'm yours. Right? When we work through the word together, it brings us together through the understanding that, you know what? This grace covers every bit of where I've been and where I'm going. Right? That's why you need one another. So they devote themselves to teaching, but also they devote themselves to fellowship, right? Right after it says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says to fellowship, okay? Uh, and, and in fact, if you look at 44, it gets kind of intense with the fellowship piece. All right, 44 says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. 46 says every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. And so these people were invested in the idea of getting together. They were heavily invested in the idea of kicking it. This is something that's high on their priority list. And, and hear me, if you don't know what's going on in the text, if you don't know what's going on in the original language here, uh, the power of this, uh, it can kind of slip by you. You see this word fellowship, this word uh, getting together, right, this, this idea that we have of meeting uh, it is the word koinonia. And it's more literal interpretation is just having things in common, commonality. And here's the thing, when this word koinonia is used in the Bible, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, it always relates or connects to the idea of us sharing or giving of ourselves. In other words, it connects to this idea of selflessness and sacrifice. That's what it connects to. So when you're reading this text and you're seeing that they devote themselves to fellowship, to meeting together, to having all things in common, there is meant to be this undertone of they devote themselves to sacrificially loving one another. They devote themselves to sacrificially loving one another. And this is important because it teaches us something about how we become God's people practically. Bonding together, becoming God's people on a practical, personal level is rooted in sacrificial love. It's rooted in selflessness. 
It's rooted in giving of yourself to one another. When you come together as Christian community, hear me, it's not just about hanging out. It's beautiful to hang out. I, I mean, I love kidding with y'all. Me and Daniel Cooper watched the Austin FC game last night, and it was better because I had someone just be like, hey, what do you think about that? Like, I hope that you hang out. But coming together as Christian community is not just about hanging out. It's about giving of yourself. That's how you bond with others. You give of yourself. And this really reminded me, check this out. This really reminded me of this documentary on Netflix called Babies. Anybody ever watch that? I'm the only one? All right. So Babies was a documentary on Netflix that talked about, you guessed it, babies. And in the first one or two episodes of the documentary, they did this really neat thing where they showed the hormonal change that takes place in birth mothers uh, when they give birth, right? When they're literally giving birth, when y'all are giving birth, moms out there, uh, your body's literally hormonally changing and preparing itself for love. The hormones are shifting so that your chemical makeup can look at the baby and be like, I would kill for you. And then... As you begin to serve the baby, like breastfeeding, waking up in the middle of the night, your hormones begin to increase, and that's what builds that sense of affection. Here was the incredible part. For biological fathers, the same process happened, but they didn't have birth. When the baby comes out, oftentimes at the beginning, the baby looks like the dad, and that prepares the dad's dad's heart for love. And then serving the baby begins to increase affection. But then they took it to another set of extremes where they went and looked at adoptive parents. At any level, whether they adopted a teenager, an infant, a baby. And they showed that the exact same hormonal change that takes place in a birth mom took place in adoptive parents as they served the child. Think about that. The same hormonal change that took place in a birthing mom took place over time in adoptive parents as they served the child they adopted to create the same affection for their child that a mom who gave birth to the child would have. What brings us together, no matter where we are, who we are, where we're from, what we look like, is this idea of serving and giving of ourselves to one another. I love the way uh, R. Kent Hughes, he's a commentator and pastor, he says it like this. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or a small study group uh, with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and go away saying there is no fellowship there, no community. The truth is we will have fellowship Only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to giving of themselves. Okay, now lastly, they devoted themselves to worship. You look at 42, 42, it says at the end, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, that word breaking of bread simply means that they took communion together. This is one of the things they devoted themselves to, to communion. And in addition to that, to praying together. And hear me, this is powerful because it reminds us that what they're doing is forever putting the truth of who God is in front of them. That's how they become one. They become a people. They become together. They become a family through realizing, looking, understanding, working through, 
uh, uh, um, comprehending, applying the truth of what God has done in Jesus in their lives. Right? That's, what, that's what's happening in their, in their fellowships. So they come together, they look and worship together, they dedicate themselves to that. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. To devote yourself to God's teaching, to work through it together, to devote ourselves to God's, uh, to fellowship with one another, to sacrificially giving of ourselves, and then to devote ourselves to worship. To forever considering what God has done through the person and work of Jesus and what that means for us and what it means for others. That's what it looks like to become God's people practically. Now let me ask you a question. It's a question you hear me ask a lot. How you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Can you look at your life and just be like, I devote myself to the Bible with others like every day, bro. You have no idea. I've read the whole Bible with like 50 people. That's amazing. Maybe you're like, you know, I, I cannot think of the last time I did something for myself. I'm the most selfless person you've ever met. I'm the most humble person you know. Maybe you're like, bro, I, I cannot remember the last time I wasn't thinking about Jesus. I think about Jesus so much, I don't have a joke for that. So, I mean, like, it, it literally just, I, I think about Jesus 24-7. If that's you, praise God. You probably have a host of people that look at you and see you as a sister or a brother that they would die for. I'm sure you're going to be in a million weddings. But if you're anything like the rest of the people in this room, you can probably join me in saying that that list causes me more insecurity and more self-frustration than it does inspiration and like hope. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. That's where this worship is so important. Because when they come together with something like communion, they don't come together with this idea of like, yeah, we're going to just talk about God. We're going to talk about like how God is working in us. No, when, when it says they come together to devote themselves to worship, it says they take of that table of bread and of, of wine. And they remind themselves of not just the existence of God, not just what he calls us to in this devotion to teaching, fellowship, and worship, but rather they remind themselves of the truth that this God saw them and came to them. That this God saw them isolated from himself and therefore isolated from one another. So he entered into the flesh himself. Right. Are you concerned about the fact that you don't engage with the Bible together? Well, guess what? The word himself became flesh. And was acutely connected to scripture, breathing scripture out of his very own voice. Yet he takes the cross so that we who were like separated from scripture could now be not just forgiven, but hear me, given the same spirit that drew him to the scriptures to feast on and to grow in. Right? Are you concerned that you have not selflessly given of yourself? Well, friend, be reminded, right, that the, the God who created all selflessly gave of himself so that we who are greedy could now uh, selflessly give of ourselves to others, knowing that everything we lack has been given to us in him. 
Right, like, like this idea that God has now entered into the story so that you could not necessarily look at yourself and say, man, am I insufficiently becoming a part of God's family? To now saying, because God has made a way, I am a part of this family and free to pursue being a part of this family practically every single day with no fear of the repercussions or the consequences that happen when I fail. Right, this is your story. Your stories, you have a family that's been knit together with you in hell and in high water and in peace and in good times because God has made sure that family is knit together for you. And the moments that you fail to be the proper member of that family that you believe that you should be or that scripture points us to being, we now look at the head of that family, Christ, and say, but he is what still holds us together. He's still what holds us together. He's still what gives me strength to go out and to continue living out this life as a family member. I have to remember the truth of what he's done, who he is, and that I'm a part of this family cosmically, spiritually forever because of what God has done. And I'll never lose my place so that now I'm not scared to fail when I go and say, hey, uh, do you want to, like, get lunch today? I don't know why every week I use that example and it's always like... uh, (laughs) I know some of y'all laughed because last week I was talking about lunch, but, but to come out of yourself, to step out and to have that moment where it's like, man, I'm mad uncomfortable. But you know what? Like, I'm okay to fail. And I'm okay to mess up. But that grace begins to motivate us to go out the next day and continue to pursue what it means to be this family together. Where are we at here? All right, I got, a, I got one story. I'm running a little late, but you know what? It, it's a good one. Um, the, whole, the whole context here uh, reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of about the story of uh, Texas courthouses during the Jim Crow era. If you don't know what Jim Crow was, it was a period when southern states uniquely formed laws to uh, segregate and to oppress the African-American community. Uh, If your race was black, these laws were created uh, to prevent you from owning homes, certain uh, type of uh, loans, getting approved for those, entering certain type of business, receiving certain types of services. Uh, That was the law of the land across the South. But in Texas, there was another group, right? There was another group that didn't quite fit into that dichotomy, and it was Mexican-Americans. You see, um, Mexican-Americans are technically white. So when we fill out... Uh, a, a census, we fill out white, and then we fill out Latino right after that. Uh, but in those days, you see the people that desired to discriminate against the black community, they weren't necessarily fond of Mexican-Americans either. But yet the Mexican-Americans were technically white. And so laws in Texas, a little bit distinctly from the laws in, in the South, started using language that wasn't just not black. It started using language like anyone that's not from Caucasian ancestry. Because though Mexican-Americans were technically white, they technically were not Caucasian. They were Iberian. So then that legally allowed people uh, to post signs in Texas that you've probably seen pictures of that would say something to the effect of no blacks, no Spanish, no dogs. No blacks, no Mexicans, no dogs. And this was probably most spectacularly seen uh, in a courthouse in South Texas where everyone from the community came, but they only built two sets of bathrooms, one for the white-only bathroom and one black-only bathroom. But then that left them in that dichotomy again. What do we do with that third group? 
So the black bathroom had two signs. It said black only, and then under it, it said baños aquí, which says in Spanish, bathrooms here. What does that have to do with living community and what I'm talking about? You're probably like, bro, where are you going with this? You see, this idea in this context, this story that I just shared with you, this courthouse uh, of being white, granting certain privileges and comforts was true broadly and theoretically, but it wasn't true practically. Theoretically, being white should have granted you all those comforts, but practically, that didn't happen. You see, there were enemies that were trying to rob that specific group of people from something that even under the present law was theirs. And so it was true broadly, but it wasn't true practically. In addition, there were those same enemies that were trying to rob not just that group from something that was theirs theoretically for being white, but trying to rob human beings at large of rights that were there simply by being made in God's image. It's why the truth that came from the civil rights movement through men like Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't, well, the law is kind of iffy here and the law is kind of iffy there, but no, these human beings, whether they are the palest of pale or the darkest of dark, were made in God's image. They, they own the rights to be free no matter who they are. This, the same echo that came from the, 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 the um, anti-slavery movement, it's the same one that came from the civil rights movement. It's this idea that the oppression and the things that work against us to keep us from the things that God calls us to have to be fought and met with truth. That you know what he's done frees me from the things that you try to put against me. Friends, the reality of community in your life the reality of be practically becoming community is going to have enemies to it. What we're talking about here in practically being a part of God's family, man, you know what, friend? There's going to be moments where your flesh comes in and says, you don't really need that, right? Like, you know, you got it under control yourself. There's going to be moments where society tells you, you don't have time for that, right? You, 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 you're, you're busy getting ahead. There's going to be moments where your, your own family may say, why do you need all that? You have us. There's been moments where your flesh or where the enemy looks and says, man, they don't like you. They won't accept you. If you're too real with them, they're going to they're gonna look at you different. Yet, friends, in each one of those circumstances, because of the truth of Jesus, we are able to look and say, no, I am going to learn of God's great acceptance as I engage God's great people. When I, when I engage and be real and make myself open and available to these individuals, they're going to show me what it looks like for someone that feels outcast to then be made a part of his family. No, 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 I, I can't necessarily just skip out on this because the greatest purpose that I'm pursuing is the purpose of God's kingdom at work in this world. Right? I, I, don't have, I, I love the fact that people want to be ahead in their careers. Go for it. Make all the money that you can. But you know what? At the same time, the greatest purpose we're called to is this purpose of advancing the great work that God has done in making a way for people to be his. Right? Like, like in each step of the way, when it comes to you joining community, there's going to be an enemy that whispers into your ear, it's not worth it. And likewise, the truth that comes out when we fight is going to have to be based on the gospel or it's going to leave us shaken going, oh, I guess it's not worth it. So today, friends, I, I honestly want to encourage you to consider where is it that you are engaging scripture with others? Where is it that you are fighting for fellowship and being selfless? Where is it 
that you are worshiping together with others. Hear me, if it's not where you're at right now, that's okay. But what I want to encourage you to do is come to this table today and to participate in the truth that God's grace has made a way for you to do all of those things. If you feel lack in those moments, he's given his son so that whatever you lack could be yours. Right? He, he, he has made a way so that the selflessness that you are commanded to give has been exemplified in the selfishness, in the selflessness that's been given for you. This is a truth in the gospel and as we worship that doesn't just bring us together but fuels us practically being God's people. And so what I want to do today is I want to close uh, simply by praying for us. But then what I want us to do is as Josh comes up and begins to play, I want you to come and to participate in communion as we finish up this last worship song. Uh, and as you work through this communion, ask the Lord to, to allow the gospel to spur you on uh, in your pursuit of community. Okay, so we're closing up this week. We'll be back on uh, community next week. But let's go ahead and pray together uh, as we close up. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the fact that we are able to um, come to you, Father, uh, understanding that you alone through your own effort have made us a family. Yet we also thank you, Father, that the means by which we continue to grow into the family that you've made us comes from you. We pursue you to understand what it is to love one another selflessly, what it is to pursue and know the word of God, to have it dwell richly in us. Uh, we love you and thank you as you exemplify what it means to worship God and invite us to worship uh, as well alongside of you. Uh, continue to dwell in us, Father, and allow us to draw close to you as we draw close to one another, having all things in common, uh, not necessarily in every practical way, but in the essential way of worshiping and knowing that you are ours and that we're yours. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 